Healthcare is changing, and our goal for the Making Healthcare podcast is to capture and share the stories of innovators and disruptors who are shaping the future of healthcare today. They are making healthcare safer, making healthcare affordable, making healthcare innovative. I am David Park, CEO of VirtuSense Technologies and the host of Making Healthcare. Today's guest is David Mercliano, the Senior Vice President of Business Development at Health Pro Heritage, one of the largest private provider of consulting and therapy management across the care continuum. David is an avid outdoorsman. He absolutely loves to fish, run, do whatever it is that takes him out of the house. So right now he's going a little stir crazy. He has four kids, two dogs, and once had a lizard that lived for 12 years. And a final tidbit about David is he loves to travel and experience different cultures. Welcome to Make, Making Healthcare, David. Hello, David. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Yeah, we're very glad to have you join us. Um, for our audience, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am a, a physical therapist by background and training. Uh, I was the, the sports medicine guy who was on the field doing athletic training work with Quinnipiac University's soccer team and hockey team and swore to my wife, who's also a physical therapist, that I would never get involved in elder care. Um, started moonlighting doing home health way too many years ago and fell in love with the elder population. Um, ended up board certified in geriatrics and somehow or another uh, ended up in this role uh, of business development with Health Pro Heritage. About seven love years. It. Love it. Love it. Hey, tell me, where does the name Merkleyana come from? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a name from uh, out of the Naples region of Italy. Uh, it's actually a place name. It's, it's very close to the name of a, a location in Italy. Nice, nice. Uh, where were you born? New Haven, Connecticut. <laughs> Is that where you grew up? Uh, I grew up in a little suburb to the north in Hamden, and I don't live very far from there now. I live in central Connecticut in Southington. Nice. Then what was life like growing up in uh, Hamden? Uh, you know, it was interesting. It was sort of a split personality town. Uh, so you had this sort of very urban area close to New Haven and Yale University, and you had the north end of town where I grew up, which was um, – forest and hiking trails and, and, uh, state parks. Um, so it was, it was, uh, anything I wanted it to be. I drove down to the other end of town. If I wanted to go and play and if I wanted to go fish, I stayed home. So while you were playing outside or, or, or fishing, what did your parents do? Uh, so my dad was a criminal investigator for the IRS. You can't make that stuff up. Special agent for the IRS. And my mom was, a was a housewife. She was a, uh, a research nurse with Yale before it was popular to do that. I'm the late life child of a uh, late life couple. So my, my mom had this whole career in research nursing in the 1950s. What were conversations like in the, at the dinner table then? Oh, pretty much anything you could imagine. Politics, healthcare. Uh, I would say those are the two dominant themes. Well, those are the dominant themes these days too. <laughs> Did you have any siblings growing up? I did. I'm the youngest of three. So an older sister and an older brother. Hey, for the youngest, you turned out very, very well, man. Striking. <laughs> <laughs> um, what were your interests in high school? Uh, you know, I don't think they've changed that much. It was definitely into athletics. Uh, I was into academics. You know, I wanted to learn. I was all about, I didn't realize this until I had a, uh, a class in anatomy and physiology, like in 11th grade. I was like, wow, human body, absolutely fascinating. It was all about the mechanics of it. So it was kind of my stuff. I was always sort of body focused, fitness focused. So back in 11th grade, um, for summer school, I took a college level course in anatomy uh, and we had to dissect a frog. 
after that event, I'm like, nope, not going into medicine or anything related to that. <laughs> I have the exact opposite response. I'm like, what comes next? Fetal pig? Great. <laughs> so then what did you do after high school? So I, I, I managed to work my way through three universities in three years, uh, but eventually ended up at Boston University's Sargent College in a physical therapy program. I was the last baccalaureate graduating class of Boston University's physical therapy program before it became a master's program. And 10 years later, of course, it became a doctoral program. Nice. So I also did my, um, I did my master's at BU. So you're in Connecticut. So are you more of the Boston fan side or more of the New York fan side? I am. And we're not discussing it further because I married a New Yorker. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. It's all confused in my household. My, my children are wayward. <laughs> all right. So then um, you graduated with a physical therapy uh, degree. Now, how did you get interested in what you're doing now? Or how did you get interested in physical therapy, which led to what you're doing now? You know, I had a girlfriend back in high school who was um, actually a student at Quinnipiac, where, which was one of the schools I enrolled in, uh, in physical therapy. And I was really fascinated by the stuff she was doing. She got into uh, the sports medicine thing and that side of it. And I thought that's what I wanted. But, you know, you get out of school and you have a couple of issues. You went to Boston University. You understand back then and today, one of the most expensive research institutes in the country. Um, I needed a tuition buy-off. Mm-hmm. So Humana <laughs> Hospital Corporation was kind enough to send me to Appalachia, where I spent one year out of a two-year contract um, working, though, in rural health. And I'll tell you what, that was a sort of a formative experience to understand that the healthcare delivery system does not work consistently across all socioeconomic um, classes and settings. Um, I got purchased, my contract got purchased by St. Mary's Hospital in West Palm Beach, Florida, um, the exact other side of the spectrum. Right. So we had a floor in St. Mary's that was dedicated to the intelligentsia, to the um, to immigrant populations uh, who uh, had a lot of money and who were well cared for by the healthcare system. And I was I was fortunate enough to carry myself in such a way that I got to work with those special populations. Mm. And then I got hired by even more special populations on Jupiter Island and Palm Beach. Mm. And And I served in the estates doing private duty physical therapy work. So I really saw the broad spectrum of the socioeconomics in this country and how healthcare is delivered rather differently in those two rooms. And along the way, um, because I wanted the background experience of working in acute care, I also discovered home health because those two are at that at that time quite closely linked and related. The hospital system normally owned the home health. And so I did a little dabbling in home health and got to learn a little bit, much to my surprise, that I loved working in elder care. That kind of got me going on the road that I'm on today. So can you share an instance of when you said, much to my surprise, I, I started loving elder care. What Can you share a story around that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I'd met my wife back in college and she was always focused on elders and I was always focused on the young, uh, both physical therapy majors, right? So she graduated from Simmons College when I was graduating from Boston University. Also in and, Boston. Yes. Shout right, out to Boston. Right. All about it. I had already corrupted my poor New York born wife. And, <laughs> and that interest sort of rubbed off on me. I'd always said, oh, gosh, I never work with elders. But doing home health in particular, I discovered that you could make such a huge difference in somebody's life. You're talking about somebody who'd had an acute stroke who couldn't get out of bed by themselves. And the day you left them, maybe they'd be on a cane or maybe they wouldn't be using anything, as opposed to the population that I'd become so accustomed to. Young athletes are wonderful, right? They want to get well. 
but it's, oh, this hurts here and that hurts there. And I'm not belittling it, but the rewards of practice are really different in the elder care population or the senior health population, where it's not a question of does it hurt? It's a question of can I do it or can't I? Can I get through the day independently or have I lost my independence for the rest of my life? Right. And certainly, um, you've experienced the joys of providing care directly. But as your career progressed, you started taking more of an administration or leadership roles. So what was the most difficult? So what are some of the difficulties that you faced in that transition? I think there was, David, there's a dramatic realization that everybody who works in healthcare is not cut of the same fabric, of the same cloth. We come to the table with different perspectives, with different mores, with different motivations for why we came into healthcare in the first place. Um, and so understanding as I sort of got into management and I got into operations management, I owned my own practice group for about 15 years. And then I started to work in corporate America within rehab services, understanding that every clinician I met wasn't necessarily wired the same way I was. And that some folks need to be motivated to do their best and others are self-winding and just go out of the way because of the rewards of practice. So that was a, a difficult adjustment for me. Okay. So you mentioned the rewards of practice. What motivates you? What, what is your reward for doing, for accomplish, accomplish, accomplishing your mission? Honestly, uh, today it's, it's evolved a bit from helping people to get well to more and more helping people to stay well. Mm -hmm. You know, healthcare delivery in the United States has changed fairly dramatically, and the care settings that folks have access to have changed. Um, your company, VirtuSense, is probably a part of that, right? So we're really looking at a health and wellness model, a proactive, a population health model of keeping folks well, understanding that the research says that once folks start that downward slide, after maybe they've had their first fall, um, the quality of life begins to slide too. But if we can prevent that first fall, that's amazing. They maintain their independence. Seeing that 90-year-old or 95-year-old who moves around as well as you and I, Dave, is pretty dramatic. Um, that's motivating. So I was at a community out in Colorado, and the uh, the CEO pulled me aside and says, you see that woman right there? And you know she just came back from hiking. She had this hiking pole. And I'm thinking, yeah, she's like, you know, probably like 86, 87 years old. It's like, she's 96. And I'm like, get out of here. Yeah. To me, like, I, I bet she hiked long more than that I've hiked in the last year. So I was just like, that's amazing. Don't you want to be her? Don't I you want love to be her? her? And don't, don't you want to help her to keep that functionality? Because it's what you and I want for ourselves, right? As we, as we sort of age in the population, I'm sorry to say that to you, David, as we age in the population, we start to recognize what we don't want to look like. We don't want to sort of sit down in the rocking chair and kind of wait on death's doorstep. We, we want to live. We want to live fully and vibrantly. Florida taught me that. I was so amazed. My home health patients back then would say, couldn't you come at 7 a.m. before you work at the hospital? <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I, normally I'm sleeping until 6.30, but why? Well, I've got like my coffee group at 8.30, and then I've got a golf game, and I've got you – know, and they live such full lives down there in South Florida. So jealous of that environment because I live in Connecticut, and we don't tend to do that here. Yeah. Oh, so my local coffee shop – um, opens at seven o'clock at seven o'clock. There's always this group of um, elderly men all in their eighties, getting together, drinking coffee, sharing stories. Their day starts at like 5am. They can't wait until the coffee shop opens. 
Absolutely. They are all in. And don't, don't we want to be just like that? Absolutely. And I actually see like, you know, you know, you and I run across each other at conferences all the time. And I see you giving, you know, presentations and speeches and we've had the fortune of working with, you know, uh, health pro heritage quite often. And the philosophy of keeping people well, it's so whoever I speak with within your organization, that's what they're always stressing on. So I think that message is very clear throughout the organization. And you guys have done a great job of that. I'm, I'm fortunate to be here. Uh, we're, we're blessed to have a, a group of leaders who have some common vision of maybe what healthcare could look like. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that. So you're saying it's, you know, your motivation went from keeping, uh, preventing people from getting sick to now more of keeping people well and what healthcare could look like. So, you know, you have a, you have a senior position within a very large organization. So as you look out, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, what does healthcare look like for you? You know, David, we're having a lot of conversations around that, both within our organization and within the broader community and with partners like like you folks at VirtuSense. So we're talking about how do we transition from this impairment-focused healthcare delivery system to a wellness, prospective, proactive-focused system. Part of that, we, we're fortunate to have um, Leading Ages Chief Lobbyist uh, on with us on a symposium we're hosting this week. And we're talking about the challenges of moving the reimbursement system to a preventative health system. So how do we fund preventative medicine, which we know is so much more economical than, than necessarily focus all of our efforts on corrective or reactive medicine? Um, you know, I, I hope that this looks like um, an increasing number of wellness communities that folks understand the need to participate in preventative medicine, that the funding sources for preventative medicine are there, that we provide access to that medicine across socioeconomic classes um, and in different parts of the the country. Because just like we have food deserts in some urban environments, we have have deserts of healthcare access. All of that's got to evolve within our our lifetime, within our professional lifetime, David. for us to really say that we've been successful. And so we're, we're moving, and this is, this is not in the slightest against the great work being done in our nation's nursing homes. But the reality is we need to move to um, wellness communities, living environments that, that, again, aren't a place where you sort of go to settle down and spend your last days, but where you go to thrive. You know, some of our communities in um, Washington, D.C., has healthcare villages. What a great idea. What a great idea that elders can live in neighborhoods supported by an interdisciplinary clinic in the center of that neighborhood that sends out resources so that if they need housekeepers or they need a therapist or they need to identify their falls risk or change their environment, they can do those things before they actually have a fall or before they actually have You know, something terrible, a transitional event happened from uncontrolled blood pressure or any number of other ailments that that our elders face. So if if, you know, the rest of the country were to replicate that model, the healthcare village that you described, what has to be in place or how does how does a thriving village occur? What needs what needs to be in there for that to occur? Probably, David, one of the first challenges 
is interconnectivity of systems. EMRs, they don't talk to each other today. Medical records don't communicate with each other. And so how do providers across the disciplines contribute to a common data set? I was speaking with an entrepreneur out of Texas yesterday, and that's his vision. And I'm thrilled that we're at the table with him to try to expand on the concepts in his head. How do we provide a complete, comprehensive post-acute care solution? Part of that is the interface of, of data systems. Part of that is the interface and the, the shared incentive across healthcare providers and their systems. So how does the podiatrist and the primary care physician and the physical therapist and the audiologist and every other specialty and the home health provider and the personal care attendants, how do all these folks end up in a shared incentive setting and who pays for it? Because that's a big issue. Right. Our today have not saved nearly enough. We know that um, our aging boomers right now um, have discovered they haven't saved enough for traditional healthcare delivery. Um, and by the time our generation gets there, hopefully that won't even be a question because we'll move past this reactive approach to health and wellness and use technology like virtue sense um, to predict when something's going to happen and intervene before it does. Right. So that's a big long answer, David. I apologize. No, it is. It so is. It, but it's very important. It's, it's the whole interconnectivity that you mentioned. And, um, Health Pro Heritage, you guys are across the continuum, whether it's, you know, I mean, yes, you do therapy, but you provide consulting services. And as you work with the schools, hospitals, senior living, whether it's, you know, independent assisted IL SNF, you do all that. That's right. How, when do you see, or are you guys making it, how do you go follow that one resident in independent to when they see the doctor, an outpatient, or if they get some acute event and they're in the hospital and they go back to the SNF, are you guys able to do that now? Or how many years do you think it'll be until you guys are able to have that residence, that person's data across the continuum? We're starting to do it now. And that's the good news. It, with a few select providers in the United States who sort of share this vision, we're, we're producing uh, what I coined and some members of my team sort of laugh at, um, CITUS and payer agnostic care delivery systems. It doesn't matter where you live or who's paying for it. Your providers are going to follow you across the continuum. It is a challenge because it means that folks have to say, this is your care team. And they work in the hospital. They work in the nursing home. They work in the ALIL senior living site. They work in home health. They work in a private office. They have to work in all those different settings. That's changing the mindset of those individual enterprises that need to employ them or at least pass along revenue to support their activities. It's also changing the mindset of the clinicians themselves who can't say, oh, no, I'm a hospital therapist or, oh, no, I'm a home health therapist or never mind therapist. Maybe you're a physician. Whatever it is, whatever your specialty, it's a changing of mindset to say, no, I'm Mrs. Smith's caregiver. I'm not the person who takes care of her in the hospital. So there's there's three major challenges, aren't there? The interconnectivity of systems, that payer source issue, and also changing the mindset of the healthcare delivery providers themselves. Mm. Wonderful. We're getting there, David. We're getting yeah. there. No, I know. I mean, healthcare moves um, you know, at, at its own pace, like it or not. And um, I'm actually encouraged by the conversations that I have. It's because, you know, you 
you guys are moving there. You guys have already started, right? There are many, many others who haven't. So whenever I hear that there's leadership that's moving this way and actually making effort into it, uh, you know, I can see it. I'm very excited about it. It's a bright horizon, David. It really is. And, you know, it's good that we have folks like the representatives at Leading Age who are sort of carrying the baton for us on Capitol Hill because the reality is legislation has to get into place to allow for this stuff to happen too, right? right? The regulation has to be loosened up in some regards. And in other regards, you know, I'm not of the mindset that says that regulation is, is necessarily negative. There is time and a place to protect um, the consumers of healthcare. Uh, but there's also a time when regulation can impede progress in healthcare delivery. So we're working on that too. Okay. So David, as a senior vice president of business development, what is one of the um, strategic initiatives that you have for 2021 that you would love to see accomplished by the end of next year? I think we have a few specific partners out there who we're working with, who share this common vision we've spoken of. And to be able to operationalize systems mm. where folks can receive the care they need, regardless of the setting that they're receiving the care in, regardless of their payer. I think we're that close, David. I think we'll see that in 2021 in several major markets with some innovative providers who do um, own each piece of the care continuum and themselves are trying to cobble it together. That's going to affect a lot of lives. So uh, I, I, you know, I wish much success on that. Okay. How about this? Fill in the blank. 10 years from now, I will have made healthcare blank. Accessible. Tell me more. Um, We've talked about it, but we will have removed the mystique from healthcare providers. I think there's a fear, particularly of those who didn't grow up the way I grew up, sort of sparring at the kitchen table over healthcare and politics. Uh, there's a fear of healthcare providers. There's this sense that if I go to see you, it means that I'm sick, but maybe mm. it means I go to see you because I want to stay well. Yes. Yes. Preach on, brother. All right. So we're just drawing to a close. And every podcast I do, I like to close with a, a spade round. So your initial blank thoughts, right? Whatever pops into your mind. You ready? Sure. What is your chief characteristic? Persistence. Nice. What do you appreciate the most in your friends? Loyalty. Great. What's your idea of happiness? My family. What's your idea of misery? Isolation. Who is your favorite character in fiction? Oh. Could be a book or a movie. Shrek. <laughs> All right, we need to get into this. Tell me why. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I just totally appreciate his humor. I appreciate the humor that is um, appealing to children, but made for adults. Uh, I absolutely agree. There's so many illusions there, like that children will just think it's funny, but as an adult, I appreciate, oh, that's a cool illusion. Right. Yeah. I think there's a line in there about, oh, I've got to save my ass. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So this answer cannot be Shrek, but what is your favorite movie? Um, Goodwill Hunting. Okay. Why? Um, a, it's a Robin Williams flick. B, it is um, a story of success rising out of the most unlikely foundations. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, like also, it's also a little bit of a romantic flick. And I got to admit, I'm, I'm a little bit of that guy too. Nice. Nice. So um, back in our twenties, we, we did a lot of volunteer work with, um, with teenagers. And as what I did was I actually required my team to watch Goodwill hunting. Cause that's actually a study in counseling. How do you get to the heart? How do you gain their trust and eventually have that heart to heart discussion so they could get through that person? So yeah. I, I love your selection of Goodwill hunting. Great flick. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Learned. Final question. What life lesson would you like to share with the next generation? There is no glass ceiling. Set the sky is the limit for you. Don't don't constrain yourselves by somebody else's perspective of what you can or cannot accomplish or what cannot or what can be accomplished in the world. Amen. Well, there you have it, David Mercliano. Keep making healthcare accessible. Thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you today, David. Thank you for having me.